Okay, podcast is rolling. Videotape is rolling. This is Dwight David Eisenhower's speech to the troops on D-Day. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. That, that type of speech being given today, 2022, that many references to God, this is Big John, you're listening to Americana, The American Way, find me on Getter and Twitter at the real underscore Big John. Um, about it. Let me get this. <laughs> you can hear my dog drinking in the background. Um, let me get this back up. A lot of people in 2022 are anti-American, anti, uh, a lot of Americans are anti-American. A lot of people on all political sides are downplaying the Holocaust, downplaying the The strength of Nazi Germany. The Germans have been. I, I've I've been told uh, by a, a, a generation younger than I am. I'm 46. Uh, I'm told. You know, people think that the Germans were a meme. That they, you know, were these goose stepping, bumbling. Uh, idiots 
let me tell you some facts before I get into all this. One thing, the Germans were the smartest people uh, of their time. I don't agree with the experimentations, experiments that their doctors did on uh, Jewish people, uh, handicapped people, anyone they thought was a lesser form of human than they were. The color of skin doesn't matter. The Jewish people are not just a religion, they are a race. And this was a racist war. The the Nazi Germans and the Imperial Japanese believed that they were a superior version of their respective races. The Germans thought that the Slavic people, like, say, Yugoslavia, uh, the Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia, Russia, these were all mongrel, lower versions of their race. And they were there for the Nazis to conquer. I cannot imagine when I was 18 or 20 years old, and at the time I really was heart set on being uh, a United States Marine. I don't know why. Maybe the cool uniform, maybe the chicks, I don't know. Um, but to storm into battle against the most advanced army of its time with the best airplanes, the best guns, the most well-trained force in human history to that point must have seemed like a immeasurable task. Uh, the United States through its uh, outstanding ability to manufacture quickly caught up with and with help from its allies, Great Britain and such, um, quickly caught up with the Germans. But at the beginning of the war, the Japanese Zero, which was like the top fighter plane of the time, was unstoppable. The uh, German, I can't remember what the name of the German planes were now, but the German Luftwaffe had the best airplanes in Europe. Uh, cousin of mine, my grandpa's cousin by marriage, Charles Lindbergh was invited to Germany and he told the American uh, politicians 
that the German Air Force was so advanced that if they went to war with Germany, uh, this was in the late 30s, if they went to war with Germany, Germany would obliterate us. So after Pearl Harbor, we had a lot of catching up to do. And companies like the Ford Motor Company came up with very innovative ways to build planes, work with our military. Uh, at the beginning, the, the Ford attempt to build airplanes for the military was such a cluster. They would build a plane, send it to the Army Air Corps, was what it was called at the time, and the Army Air Corps would say, no, this doesn't meet the specification, this door isn't big enough, or this isn't the right height, or this or that. And so they'd have to send the plane back and start from scratch. Eventually, the Ford assembly line, they said, okay, we're going to crank out airplanes, and then we're going to have a secondary facility where we make adaptations to what the military wants. And it was that American ingenuity that allowed us to catch up to the Germans. Working with Great Britain, the United States developed a P-51 Mustang airplane. And in that airplane, they put a British Merlin Rolls-Royce engine. Now, the Americans could outmaneuver, outfly the Japanese Zero and the German fighter planes. We mass-produced bombers, B-52s, B-20, well, B-52 came later, uh, but anyways, Stratofor Stratofortress, Superfortress, uh, basically a flying fortress bristled with anti-aircraft guns and loaded with tons and tons of bombs. And eventually we were able to overcome. But after victories in North Africa, after victories in Sicily and Italy, the time was right uh, for the Americans to invade mainland Europe. I, I just looked this up. Um, Uh, the average age of uh, average age of a man who fought in World War II was 26. Um, so, at the beginning of World War II, you had much older soldiers that had been around a while. Then they had a draft. 
but a lot of young men signed up to go fight for freedom and liberty. One of those young men was my grandfather, William H. Morrow. A couple weeks before he passed away in 1998. Uh, this is amazing. He had a, it was always just called the Green Army Box in our house. And it was hidden but not hidden in the basement. And nobody was allowed to look in that box. And it blows my mind that his wife, his kids, myself, never looked in that box. Two weeks before he died, he asked me to go get it. And he went through some old memories. I'm the only person other than him that ever saw what was in that box. And I'll take that with me to my grave. But some of the things I saw, letters between he and my grandmother, um, pictures of the Holocaust, pictures of his buddies, some of them never made it home. After he died, we found, and my frickin' uncle that doesn't even speak to me anymore, stole them. But we, I found a box of letters between my pap and his brothers and it was quite humorous the way they they talked back and forth uh, this was prior to them being deployed to Europe so their letters were uncensored uh, they were at different training camps one was I think getting trained to be an airborne soldier one was uh, in the Navy. Uh, my grandpap was in the Army. And they were just corresponding with each other. And the stationery and the style of writing, everybody wrote in cursive. Some of you don't even know what cursive is. Um, the, the silly things, the, the terminologies they used I can't even recall now, but it's words we don't even have in our vocabulary. Uh, you know, I'm going to wait till I get home. I'm going to kick your ass, you son of a bitch. And, you know, playful, though, not angry. And these guys, my pap, he was my grandpap, my grandfather. I call him pap, okay? My pap, he was the youngest guy in his unit. Uh, and for a long time, his uh, sergeant or lieutenant or whatever uh, wrote letters to him until the lieutenant died. And he always took my pap under his wing because my pap was the youngest in the bunch. The only one that was single, I think, in the bunch. Single being not married. But the shell shock 
I could I can't imagine being on one of those uh, landing craft and having mortars and rockets being launched at me and watching other landing craft get blown out of the water and if you made it to the beach you then were met with machine gun fire from the Nazi uh, entrenchments. The air bombardments the night before missed a lot of their targets. I mean, they were flying at night with no high technology. They were doing everything by sight. So they didn't blow up the German uh, heavily fortified, you know, three, two, three, four foot thick concrete walls on bunkers. So these guys had to regroup and sneak behind enemy lines and take out these machine gun bunkers, artillery bunkers, and all this. Um, you had soldiers climbing up the army rangers climbed straight up the sides of cliffs while the Germans were up at the top of the cliffs shooting down at them. But they just kept going guy after guy. Uh, eventually, you know, some of the Navy ships were moved in. The Navy destroyers, I think they were called, were moved in closer to the shoreline with their heavy uh, guns to take out German bunkers to clear the way for the uh, soldiers landing. If not for that, the mission would have been destroyed. It would have been over. You're 18, you're 26, and you're going against the most sophisticated, toughest, angry bastards ever with high tech what the highest tech weapons of the day one of the saving graces was how evil the nazis were the nazis had a tank that was virtually unstoppable the panzer and they couldn't move the panzer divisions uh, without hitler's say so well when the invasion started and it was in a different location than what the Nazis thought where they thought it would be. The Panzers weren't there. But had Hitler been awake or awakened and sent those Panzers, they would have wiped the Americans off the beach. And then we, we would have eventually used the atomic bomb on Berlin but the war would have been dragged out many, many years. The whole outcome of history would have been different. The outcome of the war might have been different. God was on our side. But what on God's green earth did these young men of the 1940s have in their guts, in their souls, 
to make them want to fight for the liberation of a continent, for their own freedom, to save the world from these evil Nazi bastards. I found uh, this le these letters on PBS.org, The American Experience, and uh, I'm going to read some of the letters from Normandy to Normandy is where the invasion was. From Normandy, France, back home, uh, There's I think there's four of them listed here, but this just blows my mind. And every year I have to do some kind of D-Day tribute. I have to flood my Facebook with speeches and pictures and, and things uh, about World War II and D-Day on the 6th of June. June 44, when I was in the Normandy, I was about 18, 19 years old. And now, today, I am 94. My name is George Champa. I'm 93, I'll be 94 in a couple of weeks. I was in the 607th Graves Registration Company on D-Day in 1944. In Waldo had we ein, ein ein Juden, Mendelssohn, der hatte ein Geschäft, Lebensmittel und Stoff und so weiter. Mit dem war mein Vater gut befreundet. Wir mussten ja, wenn wir ihn grüßten, mussten wir mal Hitler grüßen. You know, I was very young. I had never been uh, on any kind of a trip before. It was a lonesome feeling, you know, leaving the shore. All of a sudden you're out, getting out there in the ocean, getting further and further away from home. We knew where we were going. Invasion Day on the English Channel. Allied fighting men equipped with all types of firepower, with tanks, trucks, and bulldozers, board landing craft for the long-anticipated assault on Fortress Europe. We're uh, anchored right side to shore, and the German artillery is constantly firing. You can see ships getting hit. We didn't know if we were going to get hit, so everybody got on the side of the ship opposite the shore waiting for our turn to go down the rope ladders. I can't tell you now how long we waited. All I know is I had to get down into a LCI landing craft. And then from there, we started heading into the shore. And you're seeing guys getting hit. You're seeing bodies. I was scared to death. Tell you the truth, I, I blacked out for, for a while. I, I didn't know which way it was up. Half of our guys went in at Omaha, and half went in at Utah. I was at Utah Beach. See, Omaha is where most of the shelling was coming from. These guys were dug in, and they, and they our Air Force could, couldn't even get them because they were entrenched, and they were in machine gun nests up above the cliff in Omaha. They were shooting at guys like ducks. Da mussten wir uns fertig machen zum Abmarsch nach Richtung St. Meriglis. Einmal war es eine Gruppe Heavy Machine Guns. Da vor mir, the first and the second man, they shot. Und the third and the fourth man carried their ammunition boxes. I was a number four, 
da habe ich die amerikanischen Verwundeten gesehen. Die deutschen Verwundeten. So, here's how the letters of World War II were written. Um, it was heavily censored, like I was saying a minute ago. Uh, they would take the letter and take out what they didn't want you know if the mail truck or the mail plane or whatever was shot down or captured they didn't want the Germans to know what where who these American soldiers were so you might get a little literal little photograph like a postcard with the information that the army saw fit to pass on to your family when in reality your family member wrote you a, a three or four page letter so this article starts out uh, because letters were often censored family and friends of soldiers were often unaware of their loved ones locations and duties Nevertheless, the soldiers' the words relay many emotions experienced by the men who fought on D-Day. Many of the details of the landing were only learned by friends and relatives after the battle ended. Remember, there was no live television, no live streaming. The news agencies in America were getting information by eavesdropping on German news agencies and whatever reports they could get from journalists by telegraph from the front the, the front lines of the war and the, some of the American news agencies weren't sure if they should report this or not. They didn't know if this was real or if this was another tactic to distract the Germans. It was, it's amazing that this secret was kept as well as it was. So France, July 22nd, 1944. This letter starts out, Darling, Yesterday, I had to visit all the units again to get statements for my report. The, regiments, the regiment is in contact with the enemy, so such trips always have their skin-prickling moments. I got back pretty tired about 7 o'clock, just in time to get a phone call from the CO, commanding officer, of one of the... Uh, serene or Serene's battalions also in the line requesting me to come up and discuss personal problems with his bodyguard a fine young fellow who had sim uh, simultaneously received word that his sister an army nurse and a brother a flyer had both been killed in the South Pacific and that his remaining brother had been critically wounded with another division here in France. While up there I, I hit the favorite hours of Jerry's activities and frankly pretty 
nearly had the pants scared off of me with samples of shelling, mortar fire, and strafing. That's like a, a plane flying low and firing bullets at you. Is what strafing is. I got back at midnight having driven the Jeep myself all day. My, dr my driver being on guard. Slipping and slewing through mud axle deep. Whenever I got off the surfaced roads, which was frequently, I hate to admit it, but after a day like that, I feel my years. Yeah, yeah, man. War is a young man's game. News on the 90th has been released. Maybe you know something now of what the boys have gone through. Constant contact with the enemy since D-Day. They have taken their losses to, some say, old Bill got it today. No, you say, son of a bitch, and go on about your business. With a little more emptiness inside, a little more tiredness, a little more hatred of everything concerning war. There is certainly or pardon me, there is a certain cemetery where some of my closest friends in the division lie. I saw it grow, shattered bodies lying there waiting for graves to be dug. Now it's filled. The graves are neat and trim, each with its cross. Occasionally I visit when passing by. Always, uh, always there are flowers on the graves sometimes potted uh, geraniums uh, has been newly brought in sometimes there are a handful of daisies the French people especially the children seem to have charged themselves with this little attention our bombers are roaring overhead just now in the hazy afterglow of sunset in a few seconds, I'll hear the crunch of bombs. A good night kiss for the Nazis. There they go. The war news is good, but we're fighting over optimism. I suppose people at home are elated. The boys are up front. The boys up front are still in their foxholes. I'll try to write at least one note every day or so. Take care of yourself. I'm fine. Love, John. So, the, I mean, the, just the things he's talking about there. The, you know, people dying. and Oh, son of a bitch. So-and-so got killed. And then you have to go on about your business. So that you don't get killed. I don't know if it was the movie Patton or what war movie it was, but there's a famous line, the point of war isn't to die for your country, it's to make the other dumb bastard die for his. And that's what war is. And these Nazis, they just took over and they just killed people and invaded all these other countries that were weaker than they were 
and here you know these the British had to had to hold faith and hold strong and resist the the appeasement effort they didn't want to appease the Nazis they didn't want to compromise even though they were being bombarded and they had to live in underground bunkers you know that were converted subway tunnels um, you know and you know Britain and London were just being leveled with German bombs until the British got the new technology of radar and they could see the German planes coming uh, and it was primitive radar but once they saw those, Brit those German planes coming they could ready their anti-aircraft guns they could get their planes in the air uh, until finally Hitler had to back off his plan to invade mainland Great Britain uh, and back off of his, his aerial assaults. Now the Germans had were, were geniuses. They had rockets, V2 rockets. And they were very unsophisticated rockets but they could hit a city they didn't know where in the city they were going to hit, but they could hit a city. And they would just launch these rockets at London, one after another, and they put a special siren or whistle on the end. So when the rocket fuel burned out and the rocket started to drop, you would hear this, and then the explosion. And that was for intimidation. But the British people stayed strong, and and they learned when you hear that, you had to run for cover. Not much cover helped. You had to be underground. But still, they just were so tough. These guys that ran up that beach on Normandy, like the, the man was talking about a minute ago, how. You know, they were seeing their friends' ships getting blown up and the landing crafts getting blown up and the guys getting gunned down like ducks. It's like sitting ducks by machine gun fire. It was insane. And, you know, the, the plans had to change at times. Yeah, one of the generals there had to order, like I said, the the Navy destroyers to move in closer to the shore to bombard the German machine gun bunkers and the artillery outposts. It just, I can't fathom this. How these guys did this. I, I mean, what I guess when you're there, you know, you're in the ocean and turning back around was not an option. The only option was forward, advance, and survive and advance. You know, they would jump from one bomb crater to another to another uh, for cover and eventually make their way around the German 
machine gun nests and sneak up on the Nazis and, you know, it's just unreal. Let's read another letter. Uh, Belgium, November 19th, 1944. I hardly know how to begin after such a long time, and I really have been sweating it out. But speaking of sweating things out, in the past two weeks, there have been a few mornings that really called for a good deal of sweating out. It used to be fairly peaceful to lay in our foxholes, but these particular mornings there was plenty of big stuff falling nearby. He's talking about bombs, mortars, rockets. I never was too scared of stuff till then. We happened to be about eight miles inside the Reich, but the Reich is another word for Germany or the German uh, occupied area. Uh, we're about eight miles inside the Reich and the artillery was coming from all directions. Every time a shell started to whistle in, remember I told you they had whistles on them for intimidation, uh, I was being I was beginning another prayer as one of the dug uh, the doe feet put it I may not get a purple heart for being wounded but if they give them out for being scared as hell I'll certain I certainly rate one and that's no kidding respectfully Carl uh, Schulter so Matt, I mean, this is, you can't even put it into words, but he's trying, you know, to put into words the fear, the feeling, you know, praying to God that don't let me die this, this moment. And it was minute to minute, these bombs that the Germans were launching. The Germans were so sophisticated, so advanced for their time, you know, it was just crazy. They were no joke, people. They were the real deal. Let me play the end of this video of, of uh, the German and the American side of D-Day. Habe ich ja für sich nicht gesehen, die habe ich nur gehört, wie sie geschrien haben. Kamerad, helf mir. Da merkte ich von wegen, Helden tot. You know, our government didn't want bodies lying around for other troops coming in to see that. And so we gathered them as quickly as we could. We had 17 temporary cemeteries throughout France, Belgium, and Germany. We gathered approximately 75,000 dead soldiers. That's American and German because the Germans didn't pick up their dead. We did. We buried them in a separate cemetery, and uh, we just had markers over the graves. One dog tag left on the body, one tacked to the marker. That was our job. You're working like a robot. You're seeing 18, 19, 20-year-old guys getting killed. You remember something like that. You remember when you see the guts of a soldier. I mean, I, I couldn't look at their faces, you know. It's just, we handle bodies unimaginable. Conditions throughout those 11 months, not just at Normandy. Nazi prisoners are taken by the thousands. 
They thought their Atlantic wall was invulnerable. The Nazis fight stubbornly and bitterly, but they were outgeneraled and outgunned in the landings on the beaches, and many surrendered. We have us in Gefangen genommen and were also gesammelt in einer Stadt. We are there to Fuß. Richtung Lothar wo sie gelandet sind, die Amerikaner. Als wir da runterkamen auf die Landungsboote, die habe ich gesehen, wie viele tausende Schiffs, diese Masse, und sowas, wie wollen die dagegen was machen? We had German prisoners digging graves for 11 months all the way through, and they thought they were digging their own graves. I, you know, I had my carbine rifle. I remember standing over this one guy, and I said, Nix, Nix, Arbeiten, Nix, Essen means you don't work, you don't eat. And they'd say, yo, me no Nazi, me Polsky, me Czech, or whatever. And, and a lot of that was true. It wasn't long before a liberated Paris was hailing the heroes. The courage and heroism of the D-Day invasion were the omens of the inevitable final victory. I've seen every permanent cemetery over there except one. And I can walk through a cemetery without breaking down. I walked around wondering that, that I handle this particular body. When I saw that cemetery 50 years later with my kids, and I'm walking through those crosses at Stars of David, and I see no date of birth. People walking through there now have no idea of the age of these guys. I looked at my kids and I said, you know, you don't know this, I know it. Many of these guys were 18, 19, and 20, younger than what you are now because they were like 21 and 22. My kids uh, looked at me when we were on that bus, and uh, Michael said to me, Dad, uh, you never told us anything about it. Yeah, I said, yeah, I know, Michael. I didn't talk about it. I think these Geschichten sollten doch weiter erzählt werden. These young people who have not experienced it, they should live that we have through the invasion 70 years of peace. That's what they should always preserve. We have always said, preserve the democracy that we have through it. That was a, a Vice TV uh, clip, by the way. Uh, here's another interesting letter. Dear Ms. Troby, the gents that I speak of down here are usually known but to a few and ask no publicity. There are some officers, some NCOs, NCO is non-commissioned officer, that means you worked your way up through the rank. You didn't go through officer school. Uh, who live down there in hell are just a few miles from here. And they stay there days, weeks, months until they are killed. They just stayed there until they were killed. There are just a few. They teach men or they feed them, they protect them, and lead them sooner or later into the jaws of hell. That is the bloodiest, dirtiest, most vicious kind of murder that man, with all his machines, has been able to devise. Don't that hit home? The most 
vicious kind of murder that man with all his machines has been able to devise. These men are loved with a kind of love that exists no place else on the battlefield and it never and it is never talked about. These guys didn't come home bragging. They didn't come home, hey, look at me, look at me. I was an Army sniper. I was a Marine Navy SEAL sniper. I was a badass. Let me write a book and tell my war stories. They just lived with the emotional scars of the most vicious kind of murder that man with all his machines has been able to devise. They are never afraid. They are never cold. They never complain. And they spend all of their time trying to think of ways to help their men and to save them. I don't know if they are happy, but it isn't self, uh, selflessness. I never hope to see it. But if it isn't selflessness, I never hope to see it. He's talking about these officers that just wanted to keep their men alive, get their, their men to the fight, out of the fight, and send them home. And I don't mean to leave out the privates, but the officers and the non-coms, again, non-commissioned officers, the officers and the non-coms are the ones I'm thinking of. Remember I said there were just a few like this? The stories come tracking in every once in a while. They usually stay there until they die. They stay with their men they stay with their private, privates, that's the lowest rank of officer, or of, of soldier, pardon me. They, they stay there till they die, trying to keep these kids alive. Surely they must be God's people. He was like that. I'm sure they swore and drank and did a lot of other things. But I am sure God got them when they went away. Man, isn't that powerful? Belief, such belief in God that he knew. Uh, <clears throat> that these men were doing God's work and that God was going to take them to heaven. Uh, it's signed by BYE by you Whitney that's that's all it is so I don't know it was Whitney a, a, a nurse I mean that's a girl name but I, I don't know it could have been a could be a guy too well, anyways so God bless you if you happen to c come across one of those elderly men they're in their 90s and hundreds now with the World War II veteran cap, give them a thank you. You wouldn't be here if not for them. God bless y'all. Pray for one another. In Jesus' name, have a good night.